Hello, and welcome back to The Wages of Cinema. And we are here with the Cinema Immersion Tank. Uh, now, before I get into talking about this movie, I'd just like to warn you uh, that there may be spoilers ahead, so it might be a good idea to watch the film ahead of time. And also, uh, if there's any uh, graphic language, uh, listener discretion is advised, um, because there is. I don't know I could ever really begin to talk to her. I mean, what, what can I talk about? I have nothing to talk about. I'm born. I know. I've been told before, so don't tell me it's not true, because it's a fact. I bore people. People look at me, and they get bored. People listen to me, and they zone out bored. Who is that boring person, they think? I've never before met anyone so boring. Uh, for her to see how boring I am, Gallon of no. skim milk. No, no. Dozen eggs. Oh, one of those disposable cameras for the weekend. No. I can stop at the 7 Eleven on the way home. No, no. Uh, you know, I gotta get the dry cleaning for trash. I gotta check Billy's homework and call Mrs. Mitchell about her appointment on Tuesday. I'm gonna reschedule the dentist. You know what I'm gonna do? I mean, the next time I see her, as soon as I see her, I'm just going to tell her. I'm going to tell her that I uh, find her. Happiness by Todd Salons. Let's wind the clocks back to the late 1990s, when Prodigy was still sort of a thing, and before the internet changed everything about how we lived and interacted. Certain filmmakers turned their attentions to the fertile ground to mine that was the middle-class suburban dysfunction and dissatisfaction. Though there was the ice storm in 1997, which was set in the 70s, but could have been set in its year of release, and American Beauty uh, took aim at how people in seemingly comfortable positions in life and business and sex find other personas to take up in 1998 was most notorious for its middle-class satire, Happiness, and was made by a filmmaker who wanted to capitalize on his first success. Todd Salons was coming off his second feature film, and his first to receive major accolades in distribution as an independent film, Welcome to the Dollhouse, which was about a 13-year-old girl's travails through figuring herself out. But Salons wasn't about to repeat himself. Not exactly. Um... The thing uh, about him was he was prepared and ready to mark his territory as a filmmaker to really watch out for. That is to say, a filmmaker ready to possibly get punched out by any given audience member for what he showed. I actually wrote down in my notes on the first viewing in my tank section, What have I done? Why did I commit to watch this film so many times in a row? It came out at just the time when I went to go see anything that came out in the theater, it was my own first-time film school training. Don't ask me why right now. And yet, because it was rated NC-17, it didn't come around in my area. Did it deserve that rating? It depends who you ask. After seeing the film many times, I can see the argument either way. It's a film that has uh, subject matter that's brought up, and it's shocking and provocative. There's no other word for it than shocking. Other synonyms might include deplorable, wicked, disgusting, appalling. But the question is this. Is what, ta- is what Salon's showing simply shocking? Or are his tactics, his approach as a writer-director, shocking? 
What happens when you plainly see what's shown? But the questions I kept wrestling with on my multiple viewings were, can you lose your deeper meaning, your, uh, or can you lose your deeper meanings if you are only out to shock? And if the shock factor lessens on each subsequent viewing, what else is there? Some context should help. This is a story about a family where we have three sisters, a la Chekhov, or to my mind, as Woody Allen seems like a possible influence, Hannah and her sisters. Their spouses and would-be significant others, their parents and neighbors and other assorted people. Joy, played by Jane Addams, is the first sister we see in the film in an opening scene where she's dumping Andy, played by a weepy John Lovitz, at a restaurant and where she gets told off by him. I'm champagne and you're shit and you always will be shit. She has a messy love life and after Andy commits suicide, whether it's really because of her is never clear, she leaves her job as a telephone assistant and fills in teaching refugees during a teaching strike. Helen, played by Lara Flynn Boyle, remember her, is an author who hates her poetry but gets plenty of, quote, hot dates and can't help but talk condescendingly to her sister Trish. Not that Trish isn't capable of talking condescendingly to Joy, such as, we always thought you wouldn't amount to anything, she says in one uncomfortable scene, and yet is the only one who is married. Her husband, Bill, is a therapist who is also a pedophile. Wait, what? Yes. Bill has a thing for young boys. At first it seems, uh, shall one say, sort of harmless. A man who buys a teeny bopper magazine and masturbates in the backseat of his car in the parking lot of the store he bought it from is unsavory, but not exactly illegal. But then his own boy, Billy, has a friend he brings over one night named Johnny. And, well, things go from there. Another key character is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alan who also has one of those boring, nondescript jobs on a phone, and can't help but, whether at work or at home, getting on the phone to call up people and talk in his, quote, sexy voice. That is, well, not exactly sexy. More like phone-stalking, prank-calling, with uh, him pleasuring himself. Hello? I know who you are, and you are nothing. You think you are fucking something, but you are fucking nothing. You are empty, you are a zero, you are a black hole, and I'm gonna fuck you so bad you're gonna be coming out of your ears. Who are you? And the prank is all about being able to come. Oh, and there's also Catherine Mannheim as Alan's neighbor, Christina, who at first seems like the most normal person in the movie, until she reveals her own secret regarding a rape and murder of the doorman to Alan over some strawberry ice cream. Can you picture what I'm getting at here when I say shocking and provocative? Those kind of buzzwords tend to get thrown around sometimes for films that are not really that. But Salons isn't concerned with anything except getting into the deeper problems of these people. Some of this is minor, like not being able to stay happy in a relationship that's lasted 40 years, like the Jordan parents played by Ben Gazar and Louise Lasser. But a lot of it has to do with complete and overriding sexual dysfunction. The name of the game here is How Far Is Too Far? Up until 1998 in movies, and not really so much to this day, 
Have there been images like this in American cinema of a man who touches and rapes young boys who is seen as, is the word sympathetic? Then again, that may be too much to consider. One of the things that comes with writing up characters who have many dimensions to them and on first look are unlikable. What worse person in the world is there than someone who uses an 11-year-old boy for sexual satisfaction is that they are one way on the page. They become something else when a director casts an actor and an actor has to breathe life into that material. Someone can look at a creature like Bill uh, and be seen not even so much sympathetic but simply a human being? I think so. And that's the power and lasting ability of Salons' film, to get not simply under your skin, but into the deepest corners of your conscience. How much do you judge this man? No one ever brings this up uh, in context, but Dylan Baker lost out on all the major awards for his performance as Bill in this movie. Having to portray a a traditional family man, a guy who has the wife and three kids and the dog and a nice job and a nice home with a really sick dark side, is about the hardest thing you can ask an actor to do. Luckily for Baker, Salons is there to make him a person full of real aches and pains, but is also a pathetically funny character. In perhaps one of the most uncomfortably hilarious sequences I've ever seen in my 30-some-odd years on this planet, we see Bill as he's executing his plan of action so that his family, as well as Billy, are knocked out with sleeping pills. Bill makes up ice cream with hot fudge. The chocolate he cooked has the pills mixed in. But, alas, little Johnny doesn't like hot fudge. Baker's face through this entire thing is a master's class in pitch-black comic anxiety. What, you... you don't like hot fudge? Can I get you something else? It's his whole tone as he then gets him a tuna sandwich and... Well, let's just say as Tom Petty once said, the waiting is the hardest part. Yikes, I just wrote that. The question becomes not as much seeing a pedophile as human, but can you even attempt and succeed at getting incredibly awkward comedy out of this? Salons does, by some miracle, however, do it. Watching this film so many times, and with scenes like this, of which the body of happiness is covered with from head to toe, it made me ponder what makes things awkward, and if all and if all always translates for laughs. On my first viewing, I considered this to be a howlingly, harrowingly, hysterically funny experience. I was roped into the tensions that the filmmaker was after, and by this I mean how social norms are twisted. Some of this comes down to irony. As an aside, one of the funniest lines to the movie comes from Boyle's Helen, who says, as most of the characters live in New Jersey, we live in a state of irony. (laughs) Seeing the total opposite of what's expected. How much can one rely on irony? There can be quite a lot, but a lot of it has to come down to the timing being just right. What makes for awkward tension? Human connection. What we say or don't say to the other people around us. Alan waits on an elevator and can't seem to say anything to his neighbor, Helen, what he wants to say. He has wanted to phone stalk her for some time, as he professes to his therapist. By the way, that is Bill in the second scene of the movie. And yet he just can't sometimes it's the unsaid things and other times it's when someone just can't stop talking or says things that we normally wouldn't hear a surfeit of communication makes for discomfort and when andy tries to finally connect with helen uh, alan should find text with helen i should say there's a span of 45 seconds where nothing is said uh, and she says this isn't going to work 
and in movie time, this is an attorney. While on the other hand, when Joy at work is upset about Andy's suicide, her co-workers, Andy worked in the same office, by the way, uh, they just try to figure out who Andy was and confuse him with a good number of other employees. Yikes. Give me Take the Money and Run and Gub and Apt Natural any day of the week compared to that. Many of the uncomfortable scenes come between Bill and his son, as little Billy can't understand why he can't, you know, come. And what does come mean? Why is his penis not as good as the other boys? Perhaps Bill could show Billy what masturbation is. What happens when the ideals of the 1950s sitcom Father Knows Best get suffused with the sensibility of Woody Allen on a day where he just decided, fuck it and made his characters warp to the point of surrealism. And speaking of surrealism, another filmmaker that occurred to me here many times, and more as I delved deeper, was Louis Buñuel. This was a director who wanted to look deep into the sexual repressive desires of the middle class, of people who had so much and yet were complete messes underneath. It's like Solange is leaping off further from the world of a Buñuelscape, where the most salacious thing is a woman being tied to a tree and whipped, but unlike Buñuel, I think Solange is also after what deep wells of emotion are tucked away that are ready to always burst. Many characters cry in this film, and often. Joy, her mother, Billy, Bill, John Lovitz's character, Andy, Christina, it goes on and on. And these people inhabit such ordinary places that it adds to the humor of it. The building uh, Alan and Helen live in is inherently plain and pallid, and even the green walls are drained of excitement. There are more traditional criticisms I can give for the movie. Like, for example, that the whole subplot with the parents, there would be divorce, and how Lenny, the father, has to watch his salt and is tempted by another woman on the retirement property, and how his wife Mona is pissed that she may need to get, quote, another fucking facelift if divorced is unnecessary. It's a shame because the actors, like everyone else here, are inhabiting these roles, uh, and Gazara especially makes Lenny a character with conflicts and doubts about himself. But, and I can't believe I am still thinking this after so many times seeing this, it's not quite as wild and crazy as the other storylines, and either needed to be even more crazy uh, to give it some extra depth, or just be cut. As it is, the film is 140 minutes long, and if, it, and if most of the scenes were lost, uh, you wouldn't hardly notice for them. I think the criticism, or just the question to ask again about all this is, does the shock ever fully wear off after so many times seeing the same moments of human misery repeating themselves? In my notes, I wrote, if Spielberg uh, were to see this movie, he'd puke, or he'd hide under his blanket, or puke while he was hiding under his blanket. Unlike American Beauty, where you are put into Lester's head when he has his fantasies, for Bill, the music almost seems to mock him when he first sees Johnny at a Little League game. Like, oh yes, this is romance, right? Indeed, the style of the film, how Salon shoots and has a lot of light usually to work with, has the tone of a TV movie. There's even a theme song that Joy comes up with, Happiness, where are you? And that gets a Michael Stipe REM version over the end credits. Does shock wear off if a filmmaker is possibly sort of mocking his own characters? Or is it even mockery? What the fuck is the tone here? I think that a key moment is the fact that we see Christina's description about her rape 
and then her killing the doorman. It's another moment of discomfitting tension, and of course Philip Seymour Hoffman is the other master player here, and he makes the scene so raucously funny, if only because of his reactions to what she says. But this is a rape that is not funny in any way, at least as we're seeing it from her perspective, which is Solange's own too. And while it may seem like just another outrageous story in the mix of other moments here, it shows Solange as a moral filmmaker. There's no space or time to understand this guy Pedro as a doorman, and she gets her payback in one swift stroke. Whether she goes over the top in what she does with him, that's another matter altogether. Meanwhile, with Bill, we're never shown or really see that Bill enjoys what he does. If the idea is that almost no one in the film is happy, Bill is the saddest child predator in the history of existence. It's even arguable, the most uh, provocative question of all, if he is a victim. And I'm not sure Solans can answer that any more than if Alan is uh, completely a pathetic person or if Joy will ever find someone or something or anything to make her less of a, quote, shitty person. Ultimately, Happiness, uh, the movie, isn't perfect by any stretch. Aside from the subplot with uh, the parents, there's also little moments that are hard to take, akin to the see Tony, watch your head graffiti on the wall during the ear slicing scene in Reservoir Dogs. Like when Bill is off to go and find uh, this other kid to have his way with at night, and Salons pans over to a sign that says, watch children. And a dream scene early in the film where Bill is taking out people in an idyllic park with a rifle comes off a little dated, as if, oh yes, this is something to frazzle the audience, when perhaps, really sadly, it isn't that shocking to see that after the past 18 years of living in this country. And yet it's unlike any film that existed before or ever will exist again, despite the comparisons you can make to the subversive works of John Waters, for example. There's surely a tip of the hat to him with the shots of semen that gets shot out, including one that, yes, gets lapped up by a dog before the dog gulp, goes to lick someone with that tongue. And I'm seeing someone across from me shake their head at this. Um, over the viewings, I laughed less than the first time when I had my jaw on the floor. And yet I always found something to laugh at, a credit more to the actors than necessarily the writing. It's a film that sometimes, occasionally, smuggles in real tenderness, like when Alan and Christina share a dance to... I'm all out of love at a bar. Or when she snuggles up to him as he's in a drunken stupor. This is broken off by him puking, so yes, it's undercut, but the moment is there. What is it trying to say to us about how we live, besides that many of us are so warped in ways that would make Dennis Hopper and Blue Velvet wince, that maybe, just maybe, with a little understanding, we can not judge so quickly, I suppose? Or if we do judge, at least we can judge fully with all the dimensions at play, and that under the surface of total societal dysfunction and morbidity is someone who can be understood and be in someone's shoes a little. The deepest provocation all, indeed, is to test the boundaries of empathy. So just a few odds and ends. One, I neglected to mention that Jacob Harris, uh, uh, son of Richard, plays Vlad, the cab-driving Russian refugee student 
who finds a way into Joy's life and to romance her before, well, stealing her guitar and stereo and having the gall to ask for some money later on. I thought on the first viewing that he was the most, quote, normal guy, oddly enough, that at least he is a scumbag right up front and doesn't hide anything. That is, except that he is scummy in the most conventional way imaginable. Harris plays him totally straight, and he's not so much funny as he is kind of endearing, in the way that unlikable characters can be. Two, there are at least two references to Jay Leno, in the way of someone asking, Did you watch Leno last night? <laughs> this may be seeing either way as a cruel jab. He is, is he liked by such a bland person as Trish, the perfect housewife? Or is it accurate? Either way, it's a joke I found less of use for as the viewings went on. Three, this is John Lovitz's best work to date, and he's only on screen for five minutes. He makes Andy a deeply felt, tragic character, one who we feel sympathy for at first, but then, near the end of his scene, comes off as such a jerk to joy that it's hard to tell if he should still be so feeling sorry for, like. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to start the film and set the tone for what's to come. We may not ever feel real happiness with those who can't accept us, and that's the problem. Or is it? What if someone is just really messed up and needs help? Can we ask for help? 4. Billy's saying at the end, I came, is this movie's I'm finished, a la There'll Be Blood. 5. I kept wondering on the third and fourth viewings if the score was really appropriate. I go back again to my previous comment, but the sense of mockery is felt more on each viewing. Maybe not unlike parts of the score for Orgasmo or South Park. I don't know how I feel about it totally, but I'm leaning towards it being too much. And six. The most ridiculous moment of all in this movie is when Joy is going to the door of the refugee building, surrounded by protesters, and as she goes in after telling them off, gets pelted by them with lettuce and tomatoes. Why do they have this? Is this goddamn Batman Returns? Why does everybody bring fruits and vegetables to throw at the ready at a protest? So, that is Todd Solondz's happiness. Uh, quite the nutter of a movie. Uh, and by the way, I should mention again, Raid NC-17, which may be appropriate. I leave you to decide that. If you had thoughts about this movie, and indeed uh, it is a movie that a lot of people have said a lot of things about over the years. Uh, send us an email. Uh, you can reach us at wagesofcinema at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, uh, Wages of Cinema Podcast, and on Twitter, at Wages of Cinema. Uh, you could follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and also Stitcher, any one of those apps. Uh, you can find our podcast and subscribe if you're on itunes write us a review and give us a rating it helps our presence and gets us seen by many people out there so it would be much appreciated um and when we come back we will have our main segment of the week stay tuned <laughs> 